Hi everyone! Just a brief note to let you know that we have launched a brand new podcast called Talks at Climate, to interview top minds in the field of climate change, to discuss on data solutions in climate mitigation, adaptation, and climate finance. Listen to our podcast to hear more from the world's leading experts from academia institute and organizations. From Climate, a team of researchers and entrepreneurs based in Cambridge, Hong Kong, and London, is Talks at Climate, a show about the big ideas about climate change, data science, and innovation. Welcome back. This is the second part of our conversation with Priya and Roni, the topic of machine learning with climate change and an adage. Um, so moving on to that, uh, we know recently uh, the uh, the news coming out from OpenAI uh, really got everyone's attention on this chat GPT. Uh, so before this episode, we actually asked the chat GPT to read about Priya's work uh, and then give us some questions like uh, it should ask, it want us. Uh, so I'm just gonna um, read out some questions, but I want to hear from Priya, like what's your uh, perspective, like from computer scientist perspective on those questions. So chat GPT, uh, this is a question one. After reading your website, it asks, uh, your research often focuses on the intersection of machine learning and climate change. How do you see the machine learning being used to help combat climate change? Uh, and then it also asks a question like, you co-founded the climate change AI organization to help uh, facilitate collaboration uh, between machine learning and then uh, climate science community. And how have you seen the organization impact so far? Uh, so I, I will stop reading here, but it's, it's actually a, I would say it's a quite uh, well-assembled question list, um, but want to seek for prayers, um, your view, like how do you think of these questions are? Yeah, so I think that what's really interesting, so ChatGPT and, and a lot of these other generative models, um, they're very good at, I think, kind of mimicking style. So you can imagine podcast-related questions, they're often a bit high level, a bit forward-looking, what are the biggest challenges, how have things been going? Um, and I think ChatGPT did a, did a good job on that, as well as kind of identifying some of the higher level themes of my work. So the fact that I am a you know, co-founder of Climate Change AI, you know, focus on machine learning and climate change. At the same time, right, it's not um, necessarily accurate all the time. So looking at the, the set of questions here, there's a different question that, for example, asks about my paper on deep learning for climate pattern recognition, which is actually not a paper I've written at all. Um, and it's sort of basically pattern matching and going, oh, Priya's done deep learning, Priya's done climate, let's kind of create the name of a paper that Priya has written. And so I think in general with, with these things, it's um, my, my PhD advisor, Zico Coulter, actually put it very well in a, in a Twitter thread, just basically saying generative models are very good in a setting where something is hard to create, but very easy to verify. And if those conditions aren't met, so if it's, if it's, for example, if I search for something and I get an answer back and I have no way of personally knowing if that answer is true or not, that makes it very hard to verify. I have to go ahead and Google the thing myself anyway and check into the sources. And then it, it sort of, you, you lost the utility of the use case. Where something like this, where, you know, Karen can maybe writing questions is really difficult, but then given a set of questions, Karen can go, okay, that one's good, that one's not, this one I can tweak and really use it as a kind of start to your own process. I think these are places where generative models potentially make sense. Yeah, uh, so, so just based on that, like 
uh, we've been uh, curious about this question for for long. So, uh, what do you think is the reason? Uh, assuming we can generate the reference uh, of the results, like uh, from the large model, uh, like uh, assuming it's it's possible. So, what's your view? Like, is it possible possible to have a domain specific search engine, like based on uh, the ability of the big language model we have today? Uh, so make it like better than um, I guess like a Google or uh, other search engines we have. Yeah, it's a great question. I guess I would say that this question of domain-specific search is a little bit orthogonal to this question of um, generative models and large language models. So with kind of Google search as it stands today, we could, right, come up with search algorithms that are better tuned for a specific domain um, that allow you to search through the information in a more granular way for your domain. Um, separately, people have been thinking about, can we train, you know, large language models and, and, and generative models like chat GPT on a more specific set of data. So for example, you have the base model um, and you train it additionally on power systems data. So it has, or power systems related literature. So it has more of a notion of power systems. Um, these are both ways that one can envision kind of improving the search for power systems related information. But in some sense, it doesn't have to do with like generative models or chat GPT itself. It, it just has to do with the fact that do we care enough to be it the old way or the new way, really make sure to embed domain specific knowledge and, um, you know, domain specific data and domain specific guardrails, right? Knowing what can go wrong and the answers of these things and how do we correct for them? A lot of this is domain specific knowledge. So I think I am not personally convinced that chat GPT and, and these kinds of models provide a good solution for search at the moment. And so as a result, not necessarily for domain specific search either. But I think the prospect of having domain specific search is really exciting and can be done in a couple of different ways. And it really comes down to whatever way you kind of pursue it, including through original search, really having that that notion of embedding domain specific knowledge and, and kind of um, in being informed more so by sources from the domain that you you would like to to actually search through. Yeah, uh, and I think like just just as you emphasize, like to have human opinion uh, in the loop of uh, improving uh, all these sorts of new development of AI technology is uh, still a thing like needs a lot of efforts to work on. Uh, and then I think the like, same question to Roni uh, on this, uh, like what's your uh, takeaways on uh, on the ChatGPT uh, and the large language models? Like as you have been interviewed so many entrepreneurs, especially in this uh, area. I think Priya covered it pretty well. So it's very good for some use cases, but not good for everything. Or to quote from the uh, Le Quinn Yang, one of the you know pioneers in the deep learning space, that it's more of a writing aid for now, uh, for many use cases. I mean, it's best used as that, but it's in many use cases just like a high tech plagiarism. To put it put it bluntly. Um, so I tried to, for example, one of my uh, personal experiments with ChatGPT was to ask the bot to write me a paper, see how to become like good in uh, quantitative investing, and it that gave me like very good, uh, like high level, and so, with some kind of details of a article. But when you look through everything, uh, you find that there are something that doesn't uh, work. 
Priya just said, like you cannot just verify it, and uh, you cannot find the source to be able to trust the content that's been generated by this kind of bot. So, to summary, the use case has to be very specific and accurate for us to use that. But for now, it's limited to you know a very very specific use cases such as, such as writing aid. Yeah, and if I can jump in too, I think Karen, because your previous question had been like, if even if it generated references, would this still be okay? And I think the idea is it, it you know, when it, it it's not a matter of just like, oh, okay, great, if it just like put a citation next to what it what it got, that it would be fine. Um, because fundamentally, there are a lot of these questions relate, is it synthesizing the information properly? Is it making things up, right? I mean, even in the set of questions to me, it made up a paper I had written. And in general, um, these models, it's, it's not just like plagiarism in the sense that they kind of replicate what they see. They also, when given a question that they don't know the answer to, try to extrapolate from the information that they have. And the way in which they extrapolate is very different than the way in which a human extrapolates and, 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 and as a result leads to, I mean, first of all, when any, any of us try to extrapolate from our own knowledge, it may not be correct, but the um, model is not necessarily cognizant of that, right? It, to, to a model that is getting some input and producing some output, the model doesn't necessarily know, am I interpolating or extrapolating compared to the data that I have? Um, and the model isn't good at kind of expressing uncertainty, explaining its answers or why it might have gotten something wrong. So a lot of those aspects, I think, are not just small tweaks. They are really fundamental challenges that need to be ironed out in these technologies. Yeah. So so just final question uh, based on the chat GPT thing. Uh, so I, I really like the way uh, both of you frame it, like uh, the fundamental difference, how these models are uh, creating answers that you might necessarily uh, like to think about the question is. Uh, and I think this is more, more uh, art way, like sometimes asking a good question is more important than finding the answers. Uh, so I think a final thing, I wonder, uh, wonder to hear your comments on, uh, like what you think is the uh, biggest breakthrough, like uh, technology or new new items coming out like ChatGPT can bring compared with the traditional uh, machine learning world. Yeah, like I said, I think I'm generally skeptical of um, the the use of these kinds of models um, and and whether they will truly bring breakthroughs in in, in climate change related workflows. I think to me, in, in terms of you know how can how can these models help with climate change related workflows or other things, it feels a little bit more like the ways in which Microsoft Word and Excel have enabled things, right? You, you like having access to good word processing and good spreadsheets and good tools to then enable us to do things that are intelligent as humans on top of those tools is where I see chat GPT and these kinds of tools really coming into play as, as Ronnie said, right? Like a writing aid or, or various things like that, like spell check, right? There are all of these things that sort of has have helped us to increase our productivity as humans in various ways without necessarily replacing human ingenuity. And I do see that this that this is where these kinds of tools really come in. But there are other things that I'm very excited by, right? So things like, um, I think there have been various innovations in deep reinforcement learning and, and physics informed also machine learning that um, 
can have really cool implications for the way that we pursue different problems. So for example, um, you know, DeepMind's alpha fold was, was very awesome in terms of um, using data-driven approaches to really accelerate um, our ability to um, understand protein folding that particular case. And that use case comes up in a lot of places where you can do things like when you're trying to synthesize the next battery, analyze the outcomes of past experiments and predict, predict which batteries you should synthesize next. Um, uh, and there are, I think, lots of things like this that, that are particularly exciting to me, this interface of machine learning and science and engineering and how we can combine knowledge bases from both of these things to accelerate our ability to make progress in those areas. Yeah, I just want to echo on uh, this uh, this topic Bria mentioned about the uh, productivity uh, and how we utilize uh, the the new uh, technologies. So, for example, in back to climate change topic, uh, we were having this conversation with one of the co chair of IPCC, and then uh, the the professor described to us how the report actually was put up together, and then with the uh, growth of information coming out in climate change world is like exponentially every year. Uh, and uh, and then now the report is it has to be reviewed uh, and then be commented by researchers that hundreds and thousands line by line. Uh, so the sort of efficiency or uh, ability to process information uh, definitely will be good to have a tour uh, to accelerate that. Um, but I think the gatekeeper, uh, the eventual we still need expert in the loop to uh, give the um, answers and direction where it should be going. Um, yeah, so so uh, based on that, uh, I think like uh, both our co-hosts today and prayer uh, are involved a lot with uh, uh, education, uh, community work, uh, which is a really important part uh, of, especially for climate, uh, when we're talking about the next generations and generation afters uh, life. So I want to hear from both of your uh, opinions, like how we can improve uh, the communication between academic uh, and then technology implementation through uh, the work you do uh, and uh, and how would you uh, improve it uh, based on what we already have today? So yeah, what I was going to say is I think that right now um, the like often the you know academics and those who are doing technology implementation are not part of the same communities or even in the same rooms so um and they're often thinking about very different things academics are definitely thinking about how to kind of improve the fundamentals um and then implementers are often okay how do i take this scale this uh and things like this um and i think a lot of stuff gets lost in translation because for example i mean tying this back to our conversation about chat gpt um, you had a bunch of researchers working on this in a way that was, you know, very cognizant of the not just potential, but also limitations of these technologies and things like that. Um, and then in this case, the, the communication from researchers to practitioners was the launch of, you know, chat GPT as a tool that people could really play with. But in doing that, and I think the publicity around it, a lot of the potential got communicated, but not the limitations. And it means that um, a lot of the use cases that are being thought about in industry um, range from potentially not good use cases to, to use cases to honestly, some of them potentially very harmful. Um, and so I think this, this question of how do you kind of both get people in the same room or, or you know, able to communicate using, able to really understand each other's developments and motivations, 
but how do you appropriately communicate about the potential alongside the limitations and consequences where we don't think of this second set of things as, you know, less important, but it's really a core part of the conversation and making sure that we move forward in an impact oriented way. I think there's a lot that can be done there. Um, and I think that, you know, communities like, you know, there are many communities that uh, like climate change AI and, and, you know, and breakthrough and, and, and climate, and like many groups that are trying to convene these kinds of conversations, but I think at the forefront, right? Like true science informed discourse rather than hype has to be at the center. I just want to add one very specific example where I think where we can have a lot of impact if we, you know, push the effort a little bit more, which is the some academic program, especially partnership collaboration between, you know, uh, research institutes and the industry. And there is a role for every stakeholder to play in the, not only the companies, the universities, but also the policymakers who give out the grants to universities. And just to give you an example, I, I've seen a lot of places where, you know, PhD student or the researcher doesn't have the data, they need to train the models. But on the other hand, in companies, they use very decade-old model, but with very good data. And that there's just that gap that can be matched and can be closed to create create a lot of synergy. And there are a lot of ways to do that. For example, the company can step up bit closer, the research can step a bit closer, but also there can be a lot of incentives that's created by, for example, the government grants, which is probably the, the most source of, you know, uh, research grants anywhere in the world to incentivize such kind of, you know, uh, similar to PPP collaboration. And uh, that will give a huge boost to how we close the gap between, you know, the technology implementation and the actual academia. Ah, uh, thank you both for, for mentioning those. Uh, and then uh, not advertising, but uh, I, I'm actually right now also doing more uh, climate finance research at Imperial. Uh, one of the things motivated me initially joining uh, the school here is uh, implementation and also the role uh, finance world is playing in, in this climate sector. Uh, no country has a bond budget to, to solve climate issue along uh, neither company. Uh, and how we allocate society's resource, I think not just for uh, scientists to to find optimized ways on that, but also like how we can persuade policy to go in a way that's more intelligent uh, or uh, fitted into the the like facts can be proved by scientific research, and then like in the between how private sector are motivated uh, to join that, um, and and I think like it's uh, it. It's, it's fascinating, like, because we initially when we uh, find out about climate change AI uh, being different from other community. Um, so we realized there are uh, there are grants uh, new coming out to help researchers to do research. And, uh, and you also have like happy hour online uh, and I also have summer school. Uh, and of course, uh, the famous paper, I think, published in uh, 2019, uh, um, a topic of tackling climate change with machine learning mapped out the areas, uh, how you can use certain uh, like technology sectors, uh, research uh, into different areas. So uh, what was the background story uh, of climate change AI, how it was started uh, and uh, yeah, and then uh, how it has been, uh, how it has been so far? Yeah, so climate change AI, um, it's it sort of the, yeah, the roots started back in uh, 2018 when um, 
a bunch of people came together. So one of my co-founders, David Rolnick, um, was uh, working in machine learning and was starting to convene people from the machine learning community to try to ask this question of how can we employ machine learning for climate action, just given the urgency of this issue today. Um, and then, you know, I had been working in the um, machine learning and power systems uh, space for a couple of years at that point with the intention of helping to better integrate renewables. Um, and, you know, had been involved in communities like the Computational Sustainability Network that were bringing together computer scientists to try to work on sustainability related problems. Um, and then my, my third co-founder, Lynn Koch, she um, was a climate policy researcher who was starting to see a large amount of kind of satellite imagery, remote sensing data becoming available and was seeing the potential of that to fill gaps in the information we have when forming public policy. And so a couple of these threads came together. Um, we came together and kind of wrote this paper tackling climate change with machine learning over the course of uh, six months. Uh, and we kind of surveyed, you know, the literature, talked to a bunch of different stakeholders um, and released it alongside a workshop that we ran at um, ICML 2019. Um, and at that workshop, we and, and, you know, more broadly, we saw, you know, huge reception for the paper. A lot of people kind of at the workshop lines out the door um, wanting to kind of come help in this area, but feeling like they needed help themselves in terms of finding collaborators, finding resources, really learning about the space. And so this is what kind of inspired us to launch Climate Change AI in 2019. And um, since then, yeah, it's grown into this, this global community, bringing together you know thousands of people from across academia, industry, the public sector, um, through our kind of workshops to facilitate the kinds of knowledge exchange that we've talked about summer schools to provide targeted education, our innovation grants program, and a lot of different kind of resources on our website to help people continue the conversation on a more ongoing basis, as well as um, uh, find, you know, find out various kinds of information. And we've also worked with policymakers to try to, again, inform the discourse in a kind of science-informed way as to um, how AI and machine learning, you know, what their implications are for climate change, both the good and the bad, and how that should inform, you know, for example, national level policymaking in different countries. So um, it's been really cool to to build this initiative, um, and it's been you know largely volunteer driven, which is also really cool. It started with a team of ten volunteers, and it's grown to fifty. And the volunteers are themselves researchers and practitioners in AI and climate change from around the world. So it's been a really vibrant community and and one that's been really really awesome to, to get to help build yeah thank you so much for for this amazing work uh, i think like this is like extension of uh the education also bringing the uh practitioners uh into the same discussions on these important important matters of climate uh and similar question to roni like you've been uh interviewing having the conversation with different funders especially uh in nh uh, in Europe, uh, I think. Like, what's your uh, sort of view? Uh, how, how do you compare the community here in Europe and then uh, perhaps other places you've been lived and worked, uh, such as China? Like, people is approaching this uh, climate change issue through uh, startup world. It feels very different if you directly compare Europe and China, especially among, like, for example, our peers, where you see here in Europe, you see many people, students or young professionals in different industry, very passionate about the topics of finance, uh, like sustainability, climate change, and they actually devote much of their time and work and their future 
career planning to this field. And in comparison, I think in China, there is a relatively uh, less strong uh, you know, community working on these topics and people who genuinely believe this is true and they want to come up with some kind of community solution or want to devote much of their precious time to this topic. Um, so I think there's still room for improvements for sure. And and another thing, difference that I see is also on the innovation ecosystems. So nothing, not just climate change related, but also more general. Uh, over here, for example, people are, uh, you know, less constrained. I feel like, especially our peers, about exploring using new, like very high impact new technologies such as machine learning or blockchain or satellites to explore new solutions for our pressing challenges. And there, it feels, feels less so in, in other places. Yeah, um, if I can just add one more uh, thing uh, from my experience uh, as an individual and also our startup, I uh, think lots of time it's about the access to information. Uh, where like makes in education and community such an important component of that. So uh, you don't know what you don't know about. Uh, so so that is that sort of thing too. Uh, my takeaways on on this. Um, yeah, and then uh, so how uh, how how can people participate in your community work? Uh, say like climate change AI um, to pay. Yeah. Up? So I mean, in terms of climate change AI, I think uh, definitely I would encourage people to. Um, you know, for example, tune into our upcoming iClear workshop, um, which is in May of 2023. Um, and it's a great place to learn about a lot of the ongoing research, as well as um, hear talks from some, you know, luminaries in the field. Um, we also have a virtual, uh, we have a summer school, as mentioned, that will be running over the summer. Um, the virtual component is open to all um, and will run between June and August. And so I'd encourage people to, to tune into that if they want to learn more about the space of, you know, where is it that AI can be used for climate action? And then in general, we have, you know, a community platform, um, these happy hours, you know, various ways to plug in and really take advantage of some of the um, of some of the, the the community that exists there to really learn from others, and so I'd encourage you to to check all these things out on the Climate Change AI website. Oh, uh, so final question before we wrap this up. Uh, so we want to hear about we know you're moving to MIT soon. Uh, so going and continue in academia, and then perhaps more exciting research will coming up. What would you hope for uh, in the uh, in this year, uh, and uh, especially uh, on the climate change and the AI? Absolutely. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, for context here, so I finished my PhD back in August of uh, 2022. Um, and I'm starting at MIT in September 2023. And so over the course of this year, I've been running Climate Change AI full time. Um, and as I mentioned, Climate Change AI has been a fully volunteer run organization, almost or almost fully volunteer run to date. Um, and we're definitely looking for you know, funding for the ability to kind of hire more full-time staff and as a result kind of grow the footprint of the organization even further. So definitely uh, looking for that as a kind of this, this ability to, um, yeah, really grow and solidify the, the organization as something that, that's very important to me before starting. Um, and then when I started MIT, my research agenda is focused on this, this idea of um, trying to help us more dynamically manage power grids to foster the integration of renewables. And so 
in addition to doing algorithmic work to actually develop kind of, you know, the next generation of algorithms bridging machine learning and optimization and, and control to uh, really foster this. Um, as I mentioned, I think a big bottleneck is also the data, the simulation infrastructure, the, the ways to actually improve the technological readiness of, of these technologies and actually deploy them on power grids. So I'm very excited to contribute to that aspect as well and think about how do we actually build this underlying infrastructure that allows a large number of people to really innovate and help us push forward on some of the hard problems that we're facing on power grids. Thank you. And I will be uh, looking forward to, to hear you for more exciting news. Uh, and then, Roni, uh, what would you be hoping for uh, in this year? Um, me personally, I'd be hoping for uh, seeing a lot of new exciting technology coming out, not just ChatGPT, but also more probably in the space of climate change and energy transition. You know, last year we had fusion. Uh, let's wait, see what kind of technology we have for this year. Thank you. Uh, with that note, uh, I want to give a thanks for both of you joining us today. Thank you so much for listening to Talks at the Climate. We'll see you next episode. We're continually looking for speakers working in the intersection of climate change and AI. Welcome your feedback. Leave a message to us at contact at Bye.